Hi, and welcome to Third Waves. Third is a platform that amplifies underrepresented voices through print, events, and on the airwaves. We interrogate the intersections of culture and activism, bringing you interviews and discussions with guests who have knowledge and lived experience on the topic at hand. I am Daniela. I'm a writer, musician, and producer at Third. I am Rona, stylist, creative director, and founder of Third. And I am Tribe, radio host and music editor at Third. This is a rerun of an episode we did about swimming from some months ago. We are re-releasing it to coincide with the upcoming print issue of Third magazine, which is all about body movement. Many of us are still reckoning with the wake of what two years in lockdown has meant for our lives and habits. Exercise and movement in general are things that people relate very differently to, but can have an irreplaceable and far-reaching impact on our well-being. That is why we have focused our research and creativity on this arena this year, and we are so excited to finally share it with you. In this issue, we have heavily featured swimming as an activity. We spoke to GB Olympic swimmer Alice Deering, who is born and bred in London. We also spoke with Rebecca Aching Adjulu Bushell. She is mixed Kenyan-British and swam for Kenya as well as being the first black woman to swim for Great Britain. Through interviews with 14 incredible athletes, powerful personal essays and vibrant, playful photo stories, the body movement issue dissects questions of accessibility, gender, race, disability, mental health, community and self-development, placing representation of marginalised voices at always at the core. So go and pre-order it now on the third website, thirdmagazine.co.uk. That's third with three eyes. And we will also be having a launch event. So follow us on Insta at Third Magazine to find out how to get on the guest list. Okay, so this episode, swimming. A few of us at the third team have made it a goal to improve our swimming over the last year or so. And as we embarked upon this journey, many questions came to mind. How does access and privilege play into a person's ability to gain this important life skill? And is the swimwear industry catering adequately to different types of bodies? Is there adequate disability access to beaches? And how do we stay safe while swimming outdoors? To help us answer some of these questions, we reached out to our friends at the fantastic podcast On the Outside, who gave us some of their conversations around this topic to share with you. On the Outside is produced by the lovely Francesca Tarowskis, and it's a show with diverse views on outdoor news. That part of the show was recorded in July 2021. So if you feel like you've travelled back to around the time of the Tokyo Olympics, then it's because you kind of have. So we don't talk about sports and exercise all that much on our show, but we do talk a lot about self-love and self-care. And since the various COVID-related lockdowns, I do feel like there's been maybe a shift in people's approach to sports or just staying fit in general, which is like another reason why I was really excited to talk about the things that will come up in this episode. I think for me, swimming has become a bit of an exciting topic just because I've started actually taking swimming lessons. A funny thing about me is I actually thought for most of my early life that I could swim, but I realised on a holiday where I semi-nimmy drowned in shallow water, this is what me and my mum always joke about and call it, that actually I wasn't a very strong swimmer at all. So I've had learning how to swim properly on my to-do list for a good couple of years. So it feels quite nice to be able to actually approach that now and be taking lessons and actually be enjoying swimming. Daniela, you've also had a similar experience this year where you're swimming a lot more, haven't you? Yeah, um, I really enjoyed finding out that you started swimming um, because, yeah, me too. Similarly, it's been on my to-do list to become a better swimmer for ages and never really got around to it. And this year, finally, I started to do it a bit more. And like you, I think I always had an idea that I could swim or I had that as one of my skills. Actually, there's a funny story, and this goes back such a long time. Basically, uh, when I first came to the UK, 
I was in this school and they had this like lower school sports day, which was quite a novel concept already. And the house that I was in only had like three girls who were in, I can't remember exactly. I feel like it was lower school. So there was like only three of us in year nine. And they, and I was like, I guys, I'm not going to join the swimming because I, I'm not a very good swimmer. And they were like, no, 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 you have to, because if you can't join, then we are going to be disqualified as a house because we need to have a minimum number of people or something. Can't remember the details exactly. And so I was obviously valiantly stood up for the occasion and said, okay, I'll take one for the team. I can vaguely swim. This is going to be fine. And I was like, okay, I'm going to enter into free freestyle. Um, and I remember getting quite excited about it at the, at the time. And we were all lined up on the edge of the swimming pool and they were like, okay, go. And all these girls, they had obviously had like proper swimming lessons. They like dove into the water like a, elegant dolphin and then just like kind of raced off and I didn't know how to dive and I also didn't know how to do front crawl and so I just jumped feet first into the water landed to the bottom came back up and started very slowly doing my breaststroke to the end and I came out and they were like Daniela why did you do that that was the freestyle I was like freestyle just means like any style right I I just swam and they were like no it means front crawl and I was like I don't know how to do that and it was just like such a shocking moment that I was just like, oh, so swimming is a thing that people have had like loads of lessons and they know what how to do it. And I'm just like here doing a doggy paddle thinking I can swim. Um, and that was like definitely funny. I, I don't remember any like sadness from that day. I think it was ultimately just quite funny. Um, but yeah, that summer holiday, I kind of went home. I was just like, I need to get some swimming lessons. And like my mum was like, yeah, that's great exercise that's brilliant and I had a bunch of lessons but yeah never really kind of like persisted with the practice I think I always found it a bit boring this idea of like doing laps but now I think I appreciate a bit more that there's like a real technique to it and I just appreciate that kind of fitness more so yeah it's definitely been like a long time coming and I'm really yeah I'm enjoying this this um discovery of this new skill or like trying to gain this new skill basically but what you said earlier is really true about like when people talk about swimming they kind of talk about different things depending on what your experience has been yeah I would also say that when I did think I could swim I was swimming doggy paddle <laughs> so I think that is a clear indicator that maybe you're struggling in the water if that's the only stroke you can do <laughs> <laughs> I um, wish I could say I've joined uh, a swimming class recently. I did for try and pursue one last year. And then uh, I think it was just before the pandemic, actually. It was one of the last things I tried to do. But I have a weird affinity to water. And I just like being in water in general. Um, so I'm definitely going to take a leaf out of both your books. Because <laughs> I think what I do is I, I'm one of those doggy paddle kind of people who just get in the water and do that. And if it can get me from A to Z, I'm good, as opposed to actually having any kind of technique. So um, I think it does raise a lot of questions about our ability, I guess, living in a city um, and our backgrounds and, you know, our exposure to learning how to swim. I did have like those... Um, primary school level swimming lessons. I don't know if you, Daniela or Rona, did get any of those, or even in early secondary school. Um, for me, growing up in China, it was definitely not a thing. I don't have any memory of even going to a swimming pool. At some point, I lived by the sea, so we did go and swim in the sea. And I remember my dad teaching me how to swim in the sea and showing me how to do breaststroke because he probably thought that, you know, this is a skill that is good for you to have. So I definitely remember that. I remember really enjoying that. That was like a really fun memory of like, this was when we were in Denmark and it was like very cold water, you know, and, but it was like a definitely good memory. But like in China, I don't, I don't think it's, you know, it's not part of the curriculum really. So definitely not in a school setting. I had lessons in school and that's definitely I think because I had those lessons, that's why I thought I could swim because I think I got like my 10 meters certificate or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I also, similar to you, used to go swimming, not in the sea, but at a sort of swimming pool, leisure center swimming pool with my dad. And my dad was quite a good swimmer, but my 
mum had like this really traumatic experience in the pool um, when she was quite young. So she's never been a very strong swimmer. So I think because of that, we were quite sheltered with our swimming. We didn't really delve too deep into the, the deep end or anything like that. We just had like a lot of fun in the water. And just like you tried, I like water. And like whenever I'm on holiday, that's when I'm reminded of the fact that I not just want, but I need to swim because I'm always like, you know, the idea of going to some sort of beautiful cave where the water's like amazing and clear and being able to like jump and dive into the water and float and just be, become like a human mermaid really appeals to me. But the reality is that if I don't have some sort of like adult safety band thing, then that is not what I should be doing at my level of swimming, <laughs> at my swimming capability. So I think for me, I've really recognized that swimming's almost like one of those life skills, similar to like driving, cooking for a lot of people, that if you have it, it's just so useful, you know? Yeah, I think it's interesting you bring up this thing of like, this idea of like going somewhere on holiday or some kind of adventure and like just being able to get into the water without trepidation. Um, interestingly, in the in the next segment of the show, they actually talk about the safety of like diving into water and like being aware of like the kind of temperature of the water and stuff. So that that I found very interesting to listen to. But I actually want to say that like if you can doggy if you can doggy paddle and just be in the water and tread water and in, have a good time, I would classify that as you know how to swim. Because you're not drowning. Yeah, totally. I would agree with you there. <laughs> In your situation, I would say you knew how to swim, but because also doggy paddle isn't helping me today as an adult. But I do think there's something quite interesting with the fact that like a lot of inner city people who grow up in inner cities, this is quite a common thing for us, right? Mm. And I always remember like having a conversation with a friend of mine years ago and I was like, can you swim? And, and they were like, of course I could swim. Like, and I was like, how did you learn? Obviously they lived by a coastal town in Italy. Um, so the water was always around them. I was like, how did you learn? Like who taught you sort of thing? And they were like, my dad threw me into the water and said, you know, survive. And then I worked it out. And I guess because we just don't have that sort of access, obviously you have pools. And if you're someone who recreationally swims, and you enjoy it and you go and you practice there and make that part of your your lifestyle, then oh yeah, I can imagine you're a great swimmer. But for a lot of us in the city, if you don't make swimming something that you consciously choose to do, you don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. I also have a friend who lives in like Venice and she was she basically had exact same reaction. She was just like, you know, there's so much water in Venice. All these little kids, they run off the edge of the the pavement and they're literally in the water so that the swimming teaching in school is like taken really really seriously and that makes sense because they're literally surrounded by water all the time I also think um there is like it's one of those things in inner cities though that we have this sense that there aren't as many resources or places to go swimming we don't realize there is actually more um opportunities to do that than we realize but actually when I look into it more there's like there are actually lots of, like in London, there's so many swimming pools, actually, like in, in, within the better the better gym chain. And now I realise there's actually lots of opportunities to do that, as well as quite like different inclusive options. So like at London Fields Lido, they do like women's only swimming evenings. And at the Britannia Centre, they have like, like trans swimming evenings or days and it's like, once you look into it, there are like, yeah, I was quite pleased to find out there was more opportunities than I realised, basically. Yeah, I quite enjoyed uh, listening to, obviously, Eden from Freestyle Fridays, because obviously they do the LGTQIA uh, swim group, right? I'd never really heard of Freestyle Fridays before, but it just goes to show there are so many different sort of like community networks who are swimming together and making swimming a thing. Um, I had heard of Swim Dem Crew before. I don't know if you guys have heard of Swim Dem Crew. It's led by two guys who basically, I think they put down their motto as 
making swimming sort of like a social activity that happens in the inner city. And a few years ago, they did like the swim challenge where they were basically mentoring younger kids and like teaching them how to swim. But they do loads of sort of group activities and, you know, away days and stuff like that, where swimming is a real part of the program. And so there are these little sort of bubbles, even outside of that, of people who are using swimming in a way to sort of bridge community and make it comfortable to a a community who maybe traditionally doesn't see themselves front and centre in swimming. Mm, Yeah. And even like, when we talked about this before, I also thought that like, you know, in your local swimming pool, if they don't have those events or those time slots that would make you feel more comfortable going swimming, I almost feel like it's just sort of a lack of imagination from the organization's part because they don't realize that's something that is a niche that's out there and if you went to them and said hey how about if you did like a trans inclusive or like a women's only or whatever type swimming evening that would be really great I'm sure that that would take off just the fact that somebody else has done that first step of like creating some of these events around it kind of makes me think oh actually like it probably isn't that difficult to make more of that happen yeah totally I think If you are someone who maybe in your local area doesn't have these facilities but would like them, there is no harm at all in being the person to maybe start one. Yeah. Um, Whether you're supported by a leisure centre or not, because there are all sorts of avenues you could take. The re-release of this episode is brought to you by Picador and the release of a new book called I Heard What You Said by Geoffrey Boache. Before Geoffrey was a black teacher, he was a black student, which means he has spent a lifetime navigating places of learning that are white by default. Since training to teach, he has often been the only black teacher at school, at times seen as a role model at others a source of curiosity. Boache's is a journey of exploration. In the groundbreaking I Heard What You Said, he recounts how it feels to be on the margins of the British education system. Through a series of eye-opening encounters based on the often challenging and sometimes outrageous things people have said to him or about him, Boache reflects on what he has found out about the habits, presumptions, silences and distortions that black students and teachers experience and which underpin British education. Thought-provoking, witty, and completely unafraid to call out some of the most pressing issues of our times, Boache offers sharp analysis, lively prose, and a searing vision for how we can dismantle racism in the classroom and do better by all our students in the future. Originally from Brixton in London, Geoffrey has taught secondary English for 15 years. He is the author of Hold Tight, Black Masculinity, Millennials and the Meaning of Grime. Black Listed, Black British Culture Explored. What is masculinity? Why does it matter? And other big questions. And Musical Truth, A Musical History of Modern Black Britain. I Heard What You Said by Geoffrey Boaji is out now. So please go and get your hands on a copy, preferably at a local bookshop. All right, let's hand over to the On the Outside gang and hear their thoughts on all things swimming. Again, the following conversations were recorded around the Summer Olympics in 2021. So strap on your time travel seatbelts and enjoy. My name is Francesca Tarauskas. I am the producer of On the Outside and I'm joined by three of our resident panellists. I'm Neil Russell. I'm in my mid-30s and in the last few years I've been finding my inner adventurer while trying to navigate the hurdles disability can throw into the mix. I'm a hand cyclist, a teacher and an advocate for inclusion for all. Hi, my name is Ogeya Jizu and I am a hiking enthusiast and also the London Regional Leader for Black Girls Hike UK, which seeks to uh, support black women to get outdoors and provide a safe space for them to do so. Hi, I'm Eden Elgetti. I'm a swimmer, campaigner for LGBTQIA rights and visibility, and also an advocate for adventure. I'm the co-host for Freestyle Fridays, which is a weekly LGBTQIA swimming session in London. 
Welcome to the show. So for this first episode, I'm going to use this segment to just set a bit of a scene for you. We are recording this because right now the outdoors is becoming more popular than ever before. Over the last year, partly because of the pandemic, allotment waiting lists have skyrocketed. National park usage has increased by as much as 430% in some parks. And searches for keywords like camping gear were up by 300%. I do feel like even a drink in London can be classed as outdoor recreation these days. I was down in Soho earlier on this week and everywhere we were just having drinks outside. So there are so many aspects of outdoor recreation in the UK, and I think that we need to talk about all of them. But each episode, we don't have quite enough time for that. So we'll be talking about just three stories from the outdoors, one from each of our panellists. So today's first item, as I said at the top of the show, it could really only be one thing at the moment, and that is the Olympics. So strictly speaking, this wouldn't necessarily fall into outdoors recreation usually. But what happens in the Olympics does permeate the outdoors. And this year in particular, we have had sports like climbing, surfing and skateboarding enter the Olympics for the first time. We know from previous years that when sports appear in the Olympics, we do see a massive uptake afterwards and funding increases during Olympic years and particularly with new sports. So there is so much we can talk about here that actually permeates the outdoors. And each of the panelists brought to me a different story about this. But there are a couple of stories I just want to highlight myself very quickly as well. Um, one thing is that the first surfing gold medal for women's actually went to a Hawaiian surfer, which I think is fantastic, given that's where surfing originated. Um, but another one that was brought to me by um, one of the panelists you'll hear later Later on in the series, Kirsty, uh, was the fact that climbing, it isn't a particularly diverse sport. And there's been a little bit of a um, contention about this in the outdoor space. So that is something which we go into a little bit more detail on in the newsletter, which has gone out today. But for now, I would like to pass this over to Oge, who brought to me another story about the clothing controversies that are going on at the moment. So give us a little bit of a rundown about what's happening there. Yeah, so my kind of noteworthy news story was um, Olivia Breen, so um, a Paralympic world champion, um, was told that her sprint briefs were too short and inappropriate. So this comes at the same time Norway's uh, female uh, beach handball uh, team were fined for having um, wearing inappropriate shorts. Um, the shorts did not match the uh, uniform uh, that has been advised by the uh, International Handball Federation. It's interesting that the men are allowed to wear kind of uh, tight T-shirts or tight vests and shorts that can just be uh, 10 centimetres above the knee length. But women, women have to wear uh, kind of, uh, let me just read it because I found it very interesting. Female athletes must wear bikini bottoms that are in accordance with the enclosed graph with a close fit and cut on an upward angle toward the top of the leg. The side width must be of a maximum of 10 centimetres. And then they don't really go into why it has to be bikini bottoms. Um, and they don't really defend why they couldn't wear the shorts, which I thought was really interesting. But I'd love to hear what everybody else's thoughts are on kind of this policing of women's clothing, especially in uh, the sports arena. Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. It's great to see some big names backing Norway. Um, Norway's own Handball Federation has condemned the International Handball Federation and said they're going to keep backing their team to do what they want um, and help support and pay those fines. Pink has come out, the artist, um, in the last couple of days to say that she'll happily pay their fines as well, um, which is a great thing. But for me, it's just... 
like unimaginable that people have to wear the exact same style bikini briefs that aren't comfortable. They don't particularly provide loads of coverage. And it and it's difficult if you look at that as a younger person of, oh, that's a sport I want to play, but I have to wear those shorts. Then if you have any form of self-harm scars or cellulite or any um, imperfections within your skin that you're, you have anxiety about, you're not going to want to compete in that sport at any level because you, you, won't, you won't be allowed to. The fact that they haven't come forward and said this is why you have to wear this or this is why you can't wear that is ridiculous and it removes their credibility massively because they should at least be able to justify their their decision. Um, and it, it's very hard to think that um, changing you know, the size of, of the uniform would give an advantage or disadvantage to any team. And actually... If it was to give you a disadvantage, that would be your choice, you would think. They're not allowing a team to make that decision themselves. Um, so no, I too think it's a ridiculous decision that they've made there, but even made even more so ridiculous by not justifying it. Mm. And I think, you know, a lot of people would think, oh, well, it's just clothing. It's not that big of a deal. But I think it opens up a wider conversation about whose bodies are allowed to participate in these sports whose bodies are allowed to um when we look at what is presentable and what is is not presentable so as eden was saying you know if i don't look or if somebody doesn't look like the status quo of a of a fit sporty body does that mean that they're they're not accepted or they're not acceptable um so I think it opens up a wider conversation, especially with hiking gear. You know, you you have things that are one size, but we know that there isn't one body shape or one body size um, and things that really are um, catered for, you know, slim figured um, people. And I think it opens up a wider conversation about if we really are um, saying that we want to be inclusive, we need to look at things like this that make it so um, uninclusive, if that's a word. There's also another aspect about um, the, you know the, the sort of that the brings in like disability and, and, and medical issues as well. So like skin sensitivity that people can have um, due to nerve conditions and things like that. You know, wanting to wear different um, different materials against their skin. What scope is there if someone was on that team and said, you know, I have a skin sensitivity to this fabric or you know whatever? Are they allowed to wear something different? It seems that they wouldn't be allowed to. So that is excluding people again for, for, you know, for another reason. There should be that autonomy or a certain amount of autonomy in there for people to, to choose what is most comfortable for them to perform the sport that they're in. Um, I know that in some sports, obviously in swimming, there was, um, the, the suits that they had a few years back, I think that were the kind of almost like compression suits and people were wearing like one or two of them. And there was a lot of controversy about that. Eden, you'll, you'll probably know a lot more than I do about that. But so I can understand how that affected the performance and, and, and that brought about an issue. But yeah, I think you've got to have some wiggle room, some, some leeway there for people to, to go with what they're most comfortable with, both how they look outwardly to the world and to what feels right for them so they can perform at their best. And I, I think it's just such a big issue because it is the highest level competing within the country, but that's the highest level of handball we'll ever get. And it's the same when you look at swimming, you look at other sports and you think, okay, well, there might not be someone with that sensitivity because they, they might not be able to reach that top level. But it completely filters the whole way down through the sport and it, it sets the, the trend of what you should wear. When you look at the young swimmers, um, at the moment that I swim alongside in London, they're training for um, international events at the moment. Not They're not at the Olympics yet. They're all wearing exactly the same suits that those at the Olympics are wearing. So by enforcing one rule at a higher level, you're just saying, well, this is what you need to compete in. You can't have anything that's any different to this. That's quite irresponsible then, isn't it, for like the IPC and, and these, these people to not recognise how much this cascades down. And not only, you know, in this one event, they're saying, oh, well, you can't wear this. But the, the effect that that will have all the way down to grassroots level is, is really quite profound. I was going to say, maybe they do know because 
um, they have a big paragraph on branding and making sure there's required space for branding and, you know, manufacturing logos and all of those things. So they do know the impact that, you know, these things can, these outfits, these, you know, what uh, athletes are required to wear, they do have an impact. They do know the impact because, you know, you have to make space for branding and marketing and logos and all those things. So, Olga, you mentioned at the start there that there was the discrepancy between the shorts that were too short in running and the shorts that were too long in the hand volleyball. Do you think that this kind of, from the outside, arbitrary ruling is more obvious because in the Olympics you get all of these sports on at the same time, so you're starting to see things as outsiders? Yeah, I think because, you know, the Olympics is such a a big thing. I think because it's so global, it has that more, that, that more of a visibility. So I think that's why there's more kind of attention around it now. But I also think that because it, it, it mostly happens with women. So I think that's another thing that I think people have, have, started to pick up on that when it does come to things you know thinking about outfits and stuff it's always centered around you know women so when we think years ago about um I think it was Serena Williams um you know she got called out for wearing a cat suit or something like that I, th- I think that's what it was um and there was a lot of controversy not about how she played or even if she won but what she was wearing um, and I think it's it's a it's a consistent theme that we see, especially in in um, sporting activities. Well, across the board, I guess. I will ask you as well, okay, with the. Oh, I can open this up to everyone, but um, I would be interested to hear your opinion on it. As we mentioned in the newsletter a couple of weeks ago, there this is not the first clothing controversy in the Olympics this year. We have already had issues with the sole cap, which wasn't allowed, and then it was allowed. Can you just tell us a little bit more for listeners about what the sole cap was and, and what the issues were there? So um, sole cap, uh, is a British owned brand that wanted to get, um, FINA, um, certification to be allowed for their swimming caps to accommodate, uh, women with, uh, Afro, um, hair, different types of hair, especially for black swimmers. Um, and they were denied because, uh, they said that, um, I don't know. I actually don't know the reason for it. But they rejected the caps for natural hair, basically. Um, um, and I think the the chair of the Black Swimming Association said that uh, it will affect younger swimmers up and coming who might want to consider taking up elite swimming. So just as Eden was saying earlier that, you know, and what Neil was saying, that this has a knock on effect. And I remember growing up, I always used to think these swim, who are these swimming caps for? Because they didn't fit, they didn't fit my head or, you know, they didn't accommodate my hairstyles. So it just, again, it makes you feel as though these sports aren't for you because the, the things that you, you feel you need to buy or you need to have in order to access it are just not representative of your lived experience. And so, you know, I think their reasoning was that it didn't, um, the caps didn't fit the natural groove of the head or something like that. And for me, that just sounds insane. Um, especially, you know, if they're saying that they want to be more inclusive. But again, this is how you exclude people um, by not taking into consideration that people have different lived experiences. Yeah. And we already said that this kind of thing does trickle down. And Eden, you pointed out to me that even though this was a ruling specifically for the Olympics in this case, the group that makes that ruling, it also leads into open water swimming. So FINA are sort of the international body for swimming um, competitions. So big, any triathlons, um, Ironmans, that kind of thing, they, they, or I believe the Ironmans, they all have to abide by the FINA's rules and regulations when hosting those water events. So 
everything you wear has to then be FINA approved as well. Although the open water is slightly different um, to pool swimming. Okay, you touched on it about the ruling. The, the main ruling was that it didn't fit the form of the head and also that FINA didn't see the need for it because it's not been needed before. So that was their, their final ruling was, well, we haven't needed it before, so we don't see the need in the future. And for me, there's, there's two things to that. Is one, any swimmers that do have like a black background or have long hair to compete have cut it. So they've made a decision at some point in their life, whether it was really small and it was not significant to them, they made that decision that I'm going to cut my hair. And that, that can go across all races, but obviously that this cap has specifically been designed um, for, for the black community. I think the benefit to FINA of saying, actually, we don't see this, is it has gained a lot of momentum behind Soulcap, which is great for Soulcap, but it also gives the other big players within the swim space to say, oh, actually, we need to do something about this and maybe we need to start manufacturing maybe we need to start manufacturing those products as well. And for me, it's just sad because all I can see is a big manufacturer coming out with a hat just like this, being able to push the hat through at the same time as a sole cap going through. And suddenly it's about the big brand creating this all-inclusive hat rather than um, Michael and Tox, the, the founders of sole cap, coming through and creating a great brand and just saying, yeah, you can wear it all the way through from when you're learning to swim to competing if that's your choice if that's what you want to do. Much like we were talking about with uniforms, and I think that if you're going to rule something out in sport, it's usually that it can give an unfair advantage. And if and and, and how the sole cap could give someone an unfair advantage is mind-boggling. It wouldn't, because actually, if anything, it would give you a disadvantage um, because it would make you less streamlined in the water. So... If someone is wanting to wear that kind of cap and they feel like, well, I can compensate for the disadvantage that it gives me and I can still be a competitive swimmer or whatever, for them to rule it out with, with again, no justification or, or no justification that actually directly relates to performance is just crazy. I, I can't understand. Having worked in sport for over 10 years, you know, it really has to be based on an advantage or a disadvantage. Without that, it actually is irrelevant. And in my opinion, I would say it comes across pretty irrelevant to why they would rule it out. So after the Olympics, we have the Paralympics as well. And even though it hasn't started yet, there's already controversies coming around about that. Neil, did you want to talk a little bit about one of the ones you brought to me? Yeah, one of the stories that um, has sort of come out recently in the lead up to the Paralympics is that of Becky Mears. Um, Becky Mears is a US um, Paralympic gold medalist swimmer. Um, Becky is deaf and blind and has actually withdrawn from the event um, and, and will not be going to Tokyo to take part because she's been denied the opportunity to take her personal assistant with her. Um, this has been because of COVID restrictions. Um Understandably, uh, Becky feels this is unfair as having the assistant is essential for her to be able to take part, uh, not just at her event, but also to help her around the village so she can make sure she is dealing with the additional challenges that she faces. These would be things like not being able to get around safely. It's a new environment um, and that obviously for someone who's deaf and blind can be extremely challenging and tricky, Um, but also to help her get adequate nutrition in the village while she's there. These are a lot of things that we don't think about um, and don't see the bigger picture that, um, you know, athletes can, can face and the challenges they can come across. And if you think about it, you know, that would then have a, a knock-on effect on Becky's mental health. If she was there and not you know, being able to, to feed herself properly and feeling quite anxious trying to get around, that could, of course, affect her ability um, to, to take part in the event and compromise her performance. So as much as, you know, the, um, the COVID restrictions are there, it's a very tricky one, this situation, I would say, because the reason she's not being allowed to take her assistant is for COVID restrictions. Um, so you can see why, why that might be the case. But on the other hand, she can't take part in this 
enormous, uh, important event um, be- because of this. So it's, I-, I find this one a very tricky story because I see both sides of what's going on there. I can see why Becky's upset, but obviously COVID is, is causing a lot of problems for all of us. Yeah, she said something great um, in a particular article that I was reading up about. And she was saying that this is the biggest Paralympic Games so far there's going to be a lot more there's already a lot more brand attention there's a lot more media attention this year and everyone's celebrating the adversity that everyone's overcome but some of those um, barriers are actually being brought in by the Paralympic committee themselves and it, it just goes to show that actually when we're looking at designing an Olympic village we're designing an Olympic village not a Paralympic village the reason they couldn't have a personal caring care assistant was because there was nowhere for them to stay on site safely within, oh, okay. the, I hadn't heard that. within the athlete's village. And that's because the athlete's village hasn't been designed to have that. Um, and when they decided to go ahead with the Olympics, they didn't think, well, actually, we need to make this suitable. We need to think, look at what we're doing. They just, they just plowed, a, plowed on ahead with it. And unfortunately, that's that's put Becca in a very difficult position and one she's had to pull out after five years of training, which can't be an easy thing at all. And I think, yeah, I completely agree. And I think what's really hard is, is we see this time and time again that, you know, it's always down to the person or the marginalized group who suffers the most because, you know, things aren't well thought out or things aren't accommodating um, for, for people you know, if they had designed a, a Paralympic uh, park, just in the general, it just at the first onset, then, you know, we wouldn't have to, to, to deal with this. I think it's about how do you design these things with the most impacted in mind? And we don't think about that. Yeah, I think accessibility can often come across as an afterthought as opposed to at the inception. And it needs to be at the beginning, doesn't it? We need to make sure that, you know, if something is accessible for for those with a disability or that use wheelchairs, it's accessible for everyone then. So let's move on to talk about something else that has been in the news a lot over the past few weeks. And that is water safety. So unfortunately, we've heard that in the past couple of weeks, at least 31 people have died in water across the UK. So this actually comes on the back of Drowning Prevention Week, which was last month. And that is run every year by the Royal Life Saving Society. There are some really interesting facts that I learned from that week that I would really like to talk about, in fact. Um, one of them was that over 80% of people who drown accidentally are male. And that is a massive statistic. That is so disproportionate. Eden, I think you have a bit more information on that one. Yeah, so it tends to be made up of the people that are around the water. Um, so some of those numbers are fishermen, um, much more likely to be male working uh, in a seafaring capacity and then therefore much more likely to end up in a water in uh, poor conditions over winter. And then in the summer, it flips towards your young um, adolescents, teenagers who are potentially going into the river to cool down. Um, so it's their, it's their intention, whether they're jumping off a bridge, um, whether they're jumping off a bank or whether they're just going for a swim, but that, that cold water shock can get them very quickly. Um, it's such a drop in temperature, especially when the water, when the air gets hot, the water doesn't necessarily rise with it. Um, and I think it's only going to get worse with the rise of outdoor swimming because they see their parents um out swimming regularly and they think it will be fine just to jump straight in because their parents swim all through winter but they don't have that acclimatization and their body's not used to the water and they're not used to having that that cold shock as as a non-swimmer these kind of statistics do make me feel a little bit nervous and um that that's something which i think a, a lot of people can relate to there are many aspects about water safety which some of them are known some of them i don't know 
Eden, as our resident swimmer, um, I'd love to ask you, do you have anything that you would specifically say to people who are going out and perhaps getting into wild swimming or getting into just um, cooling off in the summer a little bit more when we have the, the massively high temperatures these days? What kind of things do we have to be aware of when we're in and around the water? Yeah, of course. So I think that's two different things that you mentioned, which is great. One is if you're using the water just to cool off, you need to be very careful. My recommendation is that you head to lifeguarded beaches. There's also um, man-made inland lifeguarded beaches, which are um, which are run by some local councils, aqua parks. They're sort of popping up around the country, which is a great way to get used to that cold water shock and just, just cool down. You know you're going to be safe if something goes wrong. You should have a much higher uh, chance of surviving anything, having those extra bodies around you. If you're going swimming and that is your intention, try and pick a popular spot. Try and pick places you know that other people already swim. Um, and there's loads of forums online that you can find that. And then my last tip is don't jump in. Just wherever you're going, even if it's a drop down into the water, lower your body gently into it and don't let go of that side until you've got your breath, until you've got control of that. Because the cold water shock, the first thing you do is a massive inhale of breath. So if you're used to the water and you know that's what's going to happen, it's fine because you can override that before you even got into the body of water. But if you're not expecting it, or even if you're expecting it, but you don't know what it feels like, it's, it's very dangerous because you can easily take on water at that point and that's 90% of the way to drowning. I think that um, maybe Eden ties in a little bit as well with the decline in um, swimming lessons that are happening for children um, and in schools and stuff like that. I know that that doesn't seem to be happening as much. I, I, I've been a swimming teacher for 10 years and I noticed that, um, you know, Kids' awareness of pool, of water safety is, is a lot lower because there's not doesn't seem to be. It used to be that you know when you were at primary school you would get a block of lessons. I certainly know that was the case in Scotland. I'm not I'm not sure how it is in other parts of the UK, but that seems to have been declining quite a lot in the last few years. And I wonder if that perhaps relates to some of the as you were saying, you know, um, the deaths that are adolescents that are going to to water to cool down and and are really just unaware of the risks that are there. So I think that certainly brings about an argument of how important it is in education to, to make sure that we're not just education educating children to what's happening in the classroom and, and things like that, but also to be prepared for being outside, to be in, in these environments. That stuff's really, really important. Yeah, and I think it's there's a lot, lot of great volunteer organisations that want to teach people how to swim, but it, it costs money. Everyone's got time and it needs to be compensated for. And especially with a lot of families struggling at the moment, um, whether they've lost their income through COVID or life's more expensive now because of COVID, they can't necessarily run those um, sessions. It's so important because I was having a conversation today with my cousins and we kind of listed, you know, five kind of life skills that you should have. And, and swimming was one of them. And I think it's so important to uh, give children that accessibility to be able to swim. So when I was growing up, we had the kind of block primary school uh, sessions that you have. But then after that, it was just we were left in the wind. Um, and I really do regret not learning how to swim when I was younger because it is such a, a life skill that I think everyone should have the access or accessibility to be able to, to have. Do you feel comfortable in the water now? Do you go swimming at all or is that something that you do avoid? I don't go swimming, but funny story, I love to go scuba diving. Well, I've been scuba diving and snorkeling on holiday but I just don't know how to swim. And there's a part of me that fears going into the water because I'm like, I don't know what to do. And it's just this strong force that can take me out at any minute. So it's like I avoid um, just going in. Even when we were, even when we, we had, um, sorry, a BGH weekender and we did paddle boarding and kayaking. And I would just felt so cautious of wanting to stand on the paddleboard 
just in case I fell in and I just didn't know what to do with myself. So I do have that kind of fear of drowning. Talking about swimming in the sea, there might now be some people that want to stay on the beach. And to finish off today, I'm going to come to you, Neil, because you have a a, a nice story for us about uh, beach access and making beaches more accessible. I do indeed. So what I have read a few articles actually about uh, different parts of the UK is where um, beach wheelchairs are becoming more available for people to rent so that they can get down onto the beach. Uh, some people might not actually realise but the thing with the problem with wheelchairs and sand is they really don't get on very well. Um, so the front casters of a wheelchair tend to dig in to anything kind of soft. Um, and the main wheels that you would push get no purchase on sand, especially if it's very soft, loose sand. Um, so beaches for wheelchair users and, and people with uh, mobility issues can be really quite tricky and, and really very difficult to get access to um, but it's lovely to see that um, for example in the Pembrokeshire coast 14 beach chairs have been funded by the Welsh Government and the National Park down there to help disabled people get onto the beach um, and another article which was fantastic to read about was a gentleman called Mick Gray um, who's down at Fleetwood Beach in Lancashire which is just up from Blackpool um, he got together with some local organisations and they're also providing beach wheel wheelchairs for hire so people with a disability can get onto the beach and for some people it's the first time in their lives they've been able to get onto a beach which is really great this is a great example of people recognising how some of these fantastic places in nature are just not accessible for some people with disabilities. These kind of opportunities and the availability of equipment are starting to pop up more and more, which is great to see. And actually going to what Eden has been saying about some of the wild swimming, this actually also opens up some opportunities for wild swimming for people with disabilities as well. Um, I sometimes do well swimming, not an awful lot of it, but I have tried a few times. And actually, one of the things I've found that can be a bit tricky is getting access to the water. So hopefully, with this abundance of beach wheelchairs popping up, we'll see more people with a disability wanting to get to that water's edge and, and get get the opportunity to get into the water and participate with other wild swimmers. So one thing I really liked about this story or the, or these two stories is the fact that you had one of them where there was an individual that noticed that this was a problem and has um, gone out of his way to, to make a change there. But you have the other one where it is the local council and it is the national parks that are putting the money into these kind of projects. So how important is that Neil for making national parks and these places accessible having that that backing from the the actual organizations getting the backing from bigger organizations is, is really important because it means that these projects tend to or should hopefully last um you know and stand the test of time um it's great to see individuals pop up and and come up with um you know funds and and finding the funds for the these kind of pieces of equipment but what often happens is if they don't have the money to then market it if they don't have the money to get the to get it out there for people to know that these this equipment exists then they maybe get used one summer maybe a couple of years and then they get put away into storage and they get forgotten about staff changes and, and things like that. And people don't know how to maintain them. The money's not there to have them maintained. And, you know, salt water and sand, for example, with, with beach wheelchairs, you know, it, it can take its toll pretty quickly on equipment. When you have bigger governing bodies um, and national parks, uh, local authorities, these kind of organisations putting money in, it, it hopefully gives these projects the opportunity to sort of last longer, uh, to be well maintained and to tap into the network and resources that they have for getting that information out to the right people. So yeah, it, it's great to see both. But, but as you say, Fran, you know, actually when you can get, um, local councils and governing bodies on board, you have the chance to make change for longer, which is, which is what we really want to see. Eden, okay, did you have uh, much of an idea about the access difficulties for people with wheelchairs on, on beaches before Neil brought that to us or brought that to us? 
Yeah, I've seen bits just through being in the sort of open water community. Um, I've seen people use these wheelchairs to get into the sea um, with a friend. So that, that's been great, but I'd assumed that they'd been privately funded rather than publicly. I think what's great about these two schemes in particular is that although they are there for hire and you can book them online for one of them, you just, just get a voucher or a token, they're completely free access for those people that need them. And that's great that the, the council and the Rotary Club, I think, was funding the second one, have just gone and said, yes, this will cost us money and we will not gain any money back from this. So it's not, a, well, hopefully people will spend £2 and we'll get 200 quid a week kind of thing. It's just flat out, this will cost us money, but that is our responsibility. And I think it's it's really important that councils are accepting their responsibility, especially when they're in a tourism-driven area. I hadn't read this story um, beforehand, um, and to my ignorance, I didn't know. Um, but yeah, I just echo what, what both Eden and Neil have said. I think it's a really great um, kind of initiative that it would be taken on by kind of the local council and, you know, substantial bodies, because it does show the seriousness of, of um, how they do want to make things more accessible to people and providing the means to do that. I just think it's just a great example of putting your money where your mouth is. And it doesn't have to be that complicated or that that big of a deal but it just makes such an impact for people to be able to you know as Neil was saying go to the beach for the first time um and I think that's amazing and a lovely story to end on If you'd like to hear more, please do sign up to our newsletter, which includes the news stories we couldn't fit into the show. We would also like to hear your thoughts and views on the stories shared today. And you can email us at ontheoutsidepod at gmail.com. That's also where you can send us the stories you think we should talk about and your own news. Now, On the Outside is about starting conversations with a view to changing things that need changing. And so in every episode, we are going to end with a literal call to action from our panellists. One thing you as listeners can do to support us and help change the narratives discussed. So, Eden, what is your call to action? So my call to action is to encourage you to engage with the Paralympics. If there's something so far that you've really enjoyed... Um, in the Olympics, put a note in your diary for when the Paralympic version of that is and just see the differences in, um, just see the differences in what those athletes have to go through to compete in the Paralympic Games. Neil? My call to action would be for swimming communities and groups to make contact with at least maybe one organisation that is providing equipment to help people with disabilities and mobility issues to get onto beaches and into bodies of water and also maybe to identify one accessible point where swimmers with a disability could gain access to the water where your group swims so that they can take part and, and be included and take part in the fun. Okay. I would say my call to action is if you're like me and you don't know how to swim to do one thing that you can to invest in learning how to swim Um, or if you do know how to swim is there someone in your life that doesn't know that you can invest in. Beautiful. Are you enjoying this episode of Third Waves? I'm assuming the answer is a resounding yes. Well, we have a favour to ask of you. A lot of podcasts will ask you to like, follow and review their episodes. And though we'd love you to do all those things, our humble request is that you share this episode with someone who needs to listen. Share the love by sharing this or any of our other episodes. Put a link in your WhatsApp group. Tweet your favourite quote or gram with hashtag third waves. Oh yeah, and like, follow and review us too, please. That was really interesting. And I'm really glad that we kind of got to feature it on our own show. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting just how much sportswear had an impact on people's abilities to actually compete in the Olympics. Maybe reflecting on some of the things they've already said, they said on the show, I think I could definitely agree and say uh, with what Oge talked about when she was talking about how with the sole cap, just something so, so simple as not having a swim cap that can cater to like, you know, hair that is braided or hair that is long or hair that is thick or Afro hair when it's, you know, out and puffy and lived in. That's a huge barrier for a lot of people actually choosing to swim. And actually, when I was listening back to that, it did remind me of when I was younger, I don't think my hair really came into whether I chose to go swimming or not. Because even if my hair was wet or like it got messy, my new braids got messy, I don't think I really cared. But as like a young woman, if I just got like my fresh braids done, the last thing I wanted to do would be to go to a swimming pool and mess mess that up and like, you know, have bleach in my hair or have to wash it and wait for that to dry. So just something so simple as having a swim cap, which covers my hair is probably one of the things that has enabled me to take swimming lessons today. Another thing that that made me think of as well is the fact that I'm short-sighted. But having things like prescription goggles or goggles to protect my contact lenses, they've become so crucial to I how much I go swimming, number one, how much I enjoy swimming, and also how good I can perform as a swimmer. So I just thought that bit was really interesting. That's such an interesting point. And I think in what the guys from on the outside were talking about, I thought it was really interesting how they talked about the, um, the trickling down effect of young athletes who are aspiring to be competitors, looking at what um, the professional athletes are wearing and copying that. And also if you have, if you are, if you look at the professional levels and what they're wearing and you know that you wouldn't be able to wear that that's stopping you from pursuing a professional uh, athletic career um I think that's a really really good and valid point but to even extend that outside of the context of like professional sports people um I think what you're talking about there is really about sort of accessing an additional option that is good for your body and your soul you know like an, a fitness an exercise option that can work for you or work for you in the ways that that is facilitated by clothing that works for you um and actually sports bras is one thing that I've been talking about with a friend of mine who um is like a sports bra engineer I guess is maybe the not the correct term but like I think bras are seriously feats of engineering kind of really comfortable supportive good ones and she was telling me that actually in swimwear, so like to design a really, really good sports bra takes a lot of engineering. And actually there's a lot of research out there which talks about how not having a comfortable sports bra if you have larger breasts can be a major, major setback or can put you off doing sports because just physically the kind of like gravitational like movement forces exerted on your breasts when you're running or whatever can cause a lot of pain if they're not properly supported and that will put women off from taking up certain sports or like sports in general and actually within the swimwear category there's currently not that many good options that actually support women with larger breasts like obviously there's less gravity when you're swimming compared to if you're jogging but there's like like if you did water polo or something I can imagine like I've not speaking from experience at all here but like if you did water polo I can imagine having a comfortable well supported swim brass area is really important like there is this amazing research in the University of Portsmouth led by this woman called Joanna Wakefield's I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce it, but we'll put it in the show notes. And there's just like loads of really interesting research that she's done about like how the kind of like sports bra might keep women away from from um, sports or like in swimwear, how it affects your your breast mechanics. And it's almost like, sorry, this is a really long thought, but 
it's almost like it goes without saying that if it's uncomfortable for you to do something, you're going to shy away from doing it. And if it's something that's like good for your body, like exercise, that's just like a really unfortunate, like really sad, vicious cycle. And I, I almost want to add additionally to that is like, you know, as women's as like women are so objectified anyway, as a young woman who's coming into having developing larger breasts I feel like you already have a lot of societal pressures and like eyeballs and the male gaze and feeling objectified as it is. And then sports is an arena where you can't hide your body or that it's it's just so much about your body that if you don't feel comfortable because your bra doesn't fit you or support you, then that's going to put you off. It just like goes without saying and, it, it, and linking it back to like kind of young teenagers, but I just find it's such an important topic. Yeah, totally. I think the whole sort of like one size fits all or one style fits all model that it seems like the committees, the boards, the rule makers want to to keep just doesn't really work for people in a lot of different ways. Remember that favour we had of you? Share the love by sharing this or any of our other episodes. Put a link in your WhatsApp group, tweet your favourite quote, or ground with hashtag third waves. Oh yeah, and like, follow and review us too, please. Thank you again for tuning in to Third Waves and stay tuned online at Third Magazine on Instagram. That's third with three eyes. I'm Daniela. I'm Tribe. I am Rona.